Hello, this is Mike Zinko. Thank you for tuning in to another podcast discussion. Joining me today is Matthew Furman, Associate Professor of Political Science at Texas A&M University and Visiting Associate Professor at Stanford's Center for International Security and Cooperation, otherwise known as CSAC. Matt is a brilliant policy-relevant scholar on a range of international security issues, in particular on nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation, as well as on uses and threats of use of military force. Uh, Matt was the author of a great book in 2012 called Atomic Assistance, How Atoms for Peace Programs Cause Nuclear Insecurity, published by Cornell University Press, and is author of a forthcoming co-authored book with Todd Sexer titled Nuclear Weapons and Coercive Diplomacy, which is out in the next month or two with Cambridge University Press, so make sure to order it now. Finally, uh, Matt co-authored with Mike Horowitz and Sarah Krebs an excellent current article in the journal International Security titled Separating Fact from Fiction in the Debate over Drone Proliferation. Let me emphasize this is a free article. It is not behind a paywall. If you Google the title or you go to International Security homepage, you can find it and read it yourself. Um, you can follow Matt's work on Twitter at MC Furman, that's at M-C-F-U-H-R-M-A-N-N, or just Google his name and his homepage comes up first. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Micah, for that kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. First, let's talk about this great new article you have in International Security with Mike Horowitz and Sarah Krebs. The piece details how armed drones are this distinct weapons platform and assesses their uh, the impact of armed drone proliferation and use, um, uh, which is going to be truly revolutionary for some missions, particular with counterterrorism and non-state actors, but for traditional interstate relations, your article finds that it's not too transformative. Uh, again, this is one of the better and most sober uh, analyses of armed drone proliferation, and I really recommend people go out and read it closely. But tell us what some of your findings were. Yeah, sure. And, and first, let me just uh, start by saying why we decided to carry out this study. What we really wanted to do is to understand the role of drones, both armed drones and also uh, unarmed drones, used more for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, for contemporary world politics. And what struck the three of us is that if you looked at the debate, both in policy and in academic literature, there was a lot of hyperbolic rhetoric. On, on, on the one hand, you had some scholars and analysts suggesting that drones were going to be revolutionary the way that, for example, nuclear weapons right. were thought to be revolutionary. And then on the other hand, you had uh, some, some others suggesting that drones were really going to do nothing, that they were basically irrelevant to contemporary international security. Right. And what we wanted to do was to examine both sides of this debate, and bring bring more nuance and, and context to the debate by looking at uh, drone proliferation in a variety of different applications and, and contexts. And our main conclusion is that the effects of drone proliferation for international security are likely to depend on the particular context that we're examining. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about counter counterterrorism operations in so-called friendly airspace, our analysis suggests that drones will, in fact, have uh, quite significant effects by providing governments with an enhanced capability. On the other hand, if we're talking about using armed drones against another country who has viable air defense systems, 
drones are going to be much less useful because the current technology makes these uh, drones highly susceptible to being shot down. Right. They simply fly, fly too slow. Um, and so the notion that, that drones will sort of transform interstate relations or transform war between countries, we think at this point is a bit premature given the state of technology. And, and drones have always sort of had this allure and this uh, this attention beyond other weapons platforms. But you make the point that, right, it is both a distinct weapons platform for certain contexts and not for others. What has been some of the feedback that you've gotten from the article um, and, and your analyses? Well, I think uh, people seem seem interested in it, certainly. And, and some of the feedback we received uh, suggests that people like the nuanced take that we that we took in the piece, which mm-hmm. was again to step back and and say maybe it depends on the context we're talking about when trying to assess the the impact of of drones on international security. The the other thing I'd say is that there's a there's what I think uh, is an underappreciated and, and potentially dangerous application for drone technology, and that's in the domestic setting. Mm-hmm. Because of the way the United States has used armed drones, namely as a counterterrorism tool to target uh, suspected terrorists and militants, we tend to think of drones as being used for that purpose. But it's also important to remember that drones really give leaders potentially more centralized control mm-hmm. over the use of force, and they're therefore desirable to uh, leaders, especially in authoritarian regimes, that might distrust the military and might want to uh, assert greater control over how force is used. And given that governments generally control the airspace in their own territory, uh, drones are less vulnerable to to shoot down in that context. So the the potential domestic application of drones, especially in authoritarian regimes, uh, we think is a is an important and underappreciated risk moving forward. So bypassing the normal military chain of command, uh, chiefs of state or chiefs of armed forces could use them more for very discreet, boutique, sort of almost assassination-type strikes. That's right. People should go and and check out the article. Just Google international security. It's in the current volume. Um, You've done a ton of really important, uh, similar policy-relevant research on nuclear weapons proliferation and some of them also with Professor Sarah Kreps at, uh, at Cornell University. You did a piece uh, a couple years ago on targeting nuclear weapons programs in war and peace, and you looked at all the different considerations by states to attack nuclear weapon or program infrastructure. You know, what did you find uh, looking at that data set from the beginning of the nuclear era to uh, 2000, and what are some of the policy implications of, of, your, of your research? Yeah, uh, let me just, again, try and put the the analysis in context here. Uh, we started working on that project in 2007, uh, which was in, in some ways the height of concerns about Iran's nuclear Iran, program. Right, right. And, and that's when we, we saw a lot of increased attention to, to Iran and, and growing calls for the use of military force to stop Iran from potentially obtaining a nuclear weapons capability. And of course, those calls continued until very recently. So what we wanted to do is to put Iran in historical context and try and understand the conditions with the conditions under which countries have thought about using military force to delay proliferation in the past. So we collected a data set 
based only on open source information, trying to identify all historical instances in which countries either used or considered using military force to delay the spread of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And then using that data set, we looked at the factors that seem to be associated with governments being interested in military force as a counterproliferation tool. And the most interesting finding that, that came out of that analysis for me was that it really seemed to be the highly authoritarian leaders who were pursuing nuclear technology that tended to be targeted much more frequently than other leaders. To be sure, lots of countries uh, historically have at least thought about pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, Depending on different metrics you you might employ, we're talking about maybe two dozen or maybe even three dozen countries. Uh, And attacks or considered attacks against potential proliferators are, of course, much rarer than that. Uh, and, And it turns out that understanding a country's regime type helps us understand when uh, leaders are more likely to be targeted in military attacks if they seek nuclear technology. And I think part of the reason for that is that dictators are seen as more unpredictable and potentially aggressive. And therefore, uh, there's this sense that they can't be trusted with a nuclear arsenal in a way that a leader in a democratic society with strong civil-military relations uh, might be able to be trusted to to a greater degree. Well, we're going to get to the impact of what nuclear weapons can achieve in interstate relations shortly. Um, But the second half of the research that you did with Sarah was you actually looked at 16 specific uh, attacks against nuclear facilities from 1942 to 2007. And was the first one the, uh, the attacks against German nuclear facilities, heavy water facilities? That's right. So so Germany had a heavy water plant in Norway uh, that the Allies tried on multiple occasions to sabotage or destroy. And what did you find? Uh, again, this is a data set from 1942 up to 2007 at the height of, height of the decisions and the considerations of, of bombing Iran. What did you find from those uh, 16 attacks? What we found is that the picture was, for better or worse, more murky than the policy debate suggested. We found that under certain conditions, military attacks against nuclear facilities did, in fact, delay the target state's ability to seek nuclear weapons. But the conditions under which attacks had been successful in the past did not, in our opinion, apply to the contemporary case of Iran. Mm -hmm. When we think about, for example, the Israeli bombing of the Osirak reactor in Iraq in 1981, we're talking about a, a very rudimentary nuclear program where there was a single choke point. Right. Uh, and if you could if you could eliminate that choke point, you could significantly delay the nuclear program. So we think our analysis suggests that that attack actually did, to some degree at least, delay Iraq's ability to obtain a nuclear arsenal. But the conditions that existed in Iraq in 1981, in our view didn't apply to Iran in the late 2000s and even and even still today, in part because Iran's nuclear program was much more diffuse. Right. And uh, it would have been much more difficult, in our view, to, to eliminate all of the relevant facilities for Iran's nuclear infrastructure. And of course, uh, a mission's only going to be successful if you, if you can eliminate everything, in our view. Including knowledge. That's right. And that, and that gets us into a, a very uh, 
gray area in terms of moral and ethical concerns, of course. But I remember very specifically in the you know late 2000s, there were many U.S. military officials who made the claim that an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities or known nuclear facility would delay the program one to three years, and that sort of became a mantra. Was there any historical evidence for that claim, or is that just how fast they think they can rebuild things and dig tunnels? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be interested to know more about the science on which that claim is based. If it's just how quickly could Iran rebuild centrifuges, right? Uh, then, then one to three years sounds in the ballpark of of how long it would take. But of course, there's so many assumptions embedded in that in that assessment, including that all of the centrifuges Iran possesses would be destroyed. Right. And that they'd have to rebuild from scratch, which seems to me to be a fairly heroic assumption. Right, right. Well, you know, one of the other uh, longer-term aspects of your research agenda has been trying to understand the, the consequences of nuclear assistance, because in your book, Atomic Assistance, you looked at peaceful nuclear assistance, which has been going on uh, since the dawn of the nuclear age, when, as uh, I can't remember the U.S. official who famously said that nuclear energy would be too cheap to meter, and it would be uh, this powerful development tool, uh, and that would cheaply and effectively sort of allow the third world to raise up. And so lots of countries, but especially the United States, provided, quote, peaceful nuclear assistance. But you found that some of this uh, nuclear assistance had uh, distinct dual-use purposes and could increase the likelihood of receiving states uh, becoming nuclear weapon states themselves. Just talk broadly about that research program and your findings. Yeah, sure. Uh, so what what sort of struck me was the fact that when policymakers and, and academic scholars as well talk about nuclear assistance, they tend to focus on cases like the Pakistani-based AQCon network, right. where there's uh, illicit nuclear assistance provided by what we might think of as, as a so-called rogue regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so based on that line of thinking, the real proliferation problem from a nuclear assistance standpoint stems from countries like Pakistan or even North Korea. I thought, though, that the the risks posed by seemingly legitimate, peaceful nuclear assistance were underappreciated, mm-hmm. both by policymakers and scholars. And so what I wanted to do is to look at, look at this issue in a systematic and, and serious way and try and understand the proliferation risks that stem from peaceful nuclear cooperation. And it turns out, based on my analysis, that, that there's a stronger link here than than a lot of people would acknowledge or, or, or believe. And we can show uh, statistically that countries receiving higher levels of civilian nuclear assistance for their so-called peaceful nuclear programs are more likely to obtain and uh, express an interest in nuclear weapons right. down the road. Uh, now, because there are very few countries, only 10 countries, in fact, have ever built nuclear weapons, and maybe two dozen or so have expressed an, an interest in in having a nuclear arsenal. So because we're talking about something that's relatively rare, uh, the statistical relationship between peaceful nuclear assistance and proliferation is a bit tenuous. Sure. But 
uh, it's a relationship that I think needs to be taken more seriously. And, and certainly there was the case, I mean, under the Bush administration, and, and I think this, as you know, throughout time ebbs and flows with the price of oil. There was this notion of a nuclear renaissance, and there were uh, a lot of people itching to uh, sort of replicate a lot of the uh, peaceful nuclear assistance that was sort of shoved out the door in the late 1950s and 60s. Uh, do you think that there's an appetite for these uh, uh, peaceful civilian nuclear programs today? And could you imagine, you know, a situation where uh, there would be insufficient end-user and monitoring uh, inspection regimes that a state could apply that to to, to potentially proliferate? Or, or are we just, have we gotten smarter and is the IAEA more intrusive today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? Well, certainly institutional enhancement over time, including the strengthening of the IAEA safeguards regime, have helped matters significantly. Sure. But I think there's there's still a significant risk posed by uh, civil nuclear programs operating in countries in the Middle East and, and other conflict-prone parts of the world. Um, at the time that there was a lot of talk of the nuclear renaissance, say 10 years ago or so, uh, I was was concerned about the potential proliferation implications of countries in East Asia and the Middle East and, and elsewhere uh, developing commercial nuclear programs with assistance from nuclear suppliers. Uh, history shows that, that those programs can often serve as a fig leaf for the military applications of nuclear energy. Sure. That doesn't mean, of course, that, that every country that developed a civil nuclear program would go on to to want nuclear weapons. But I think it does increase the probability or the risk of that happening to some degree. Well, then, let me just talk about broadly what what constrains states who could otherwise uh, turn key, you know, develop a viable and deliverable nuclear weapon. Why do states not do it? Well, that's, of course, a complicated question, (laughs) and there's a a lot of factors in play. There's a a normative dimension there in that uh, sure. pursuing nuclear weapons today is seen as something that, for the most part, a, a responsible state uh, shouldn't do. There's institutional limitations stemming from the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, a treaty uh, designed to limit the, the spread of nuclear weapons. There's also the, the prospect of setting the United States and other uh, major powers in the international system. Uh, the potential for economic sanctions. So to the extent you're integrated in the global economy, seeking a, a nuclear arsenal is potentially costly. Sure. Um, so it's a complicated issue, and there, there are lots of factors at play. I think an, under, an underappreciated part of this uh, ties into some of my current research that maybe we'll talk about later on, about nuclear latency, that right. is having the capability to proliferate without actually doing so. We well, can think of Japan as being a classic case of this. Well, before we before we get to that, I wanted to talk about a piece you had with Jan Lupu, uh, Do Arms Control Treaties Work? Because this is one of the better statistical analyses of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And you look at it from its sort of founding through the 2007 time period, and your basic conclusion is it's more effective than people seem to think. It does constrain state's decision-making. It's not just, quote, a piece of paper that countries sign, but it has clearly some normative or political impact on domestic actors. 
Right. So this this study, uh, the conclusions from this study uh, surprised even me to some degree. Uh, in some of my earlier writing, I was skeptical that the NPT uh, limited prolifer- proliferation to the degree that some of the treaty's proponents had previously articulated. Right. Uh, the problem, though, is that with, within this debate, there's a lot of uh, very uh, strong views about the treaty without a lot of rigorous evidence, in my opinion. So uh, Jan Lupu and I decided to design a study that would allow us to actually use statistical analysis to assess whether the treaty has restrained countries from going nuclear that might have otherwise gone, done so in the absence of joining the treaty. And we found, again, somewhat to my surprise, that there was evidence that uh, joining the NPT reduced the probability that a state would pursue nuclear weapons. And I should say that looking at this issue empirically is difficult because sure. it's hard to know whether whether a treaty commitment is, is a cause of nonproliferation or a consequence of it. Right. You might think, for example, that... If a state's ratifying the NPT, they've already decided that they're going to be non-nuclear. So we observe a relationship between a state signing the treaty and then they don't get nuclear weapons. That makes it look like the treaty had an impact on their behavior, when maybe it was just that the country had no interest in nuclear weapons in the first place, and that's why they decided to join the treaty. So our study actually allows us to address that issue and even accounting for that strategic problem that I just laid out, we still find that, that the treaty has restrained proliferation to some degree. And, and that piece is out with International Studies Quarterly, and I, I highly recommend it, called Do Arms Control Treaties Work? So now let's get to what nuclear weapons or their potential development can achieve. Um, this is the great new book you have coming out with Todd Sexer. Todd, by the way, was our third podcast guest. So if Anybody who's listening now, go back and listen to my conversation with Todd uh, from June. He is a great scholar of coercion, sort of all things, uses and threats of force. And in many ways, like this book sort of marries your two uh, research agendas and data sets where you uh, think about what do nuclear weapons actually achieve in crisis bargaining and in course of diplomacy. So uh, you, you had mentioned this is one of, the, one of the potential reasons that states don't proliferate because they don't believe it actually will have a, a clear demonstrable impact on its potential adversaries and allies. And in your book, you challenge the notion of the nuclear coercionists uh, that, state, that, that states can have better uh, compellence or coercion outcomes with nuclear weapons. So uh, talk about this great new book coming out with uh, Cambridge University Press. Yeah, thanks. So when we decided to write this book, what Todd and I wanted to do is to try and understand the role of nuclear weapons in the 21st century. Our feeling was that a lot of the real innovations about nuclear deterrence and theories that tried to get at how nuclear weapons impact a state's foreign policy were really done during the Cold War. Right. And, of course, the world has changed a lot since then. We're no longer facing... uh, a bipolar world where two superpowers have massive nuclear arsenals pointed at one another. Instead, there's a single superpower, lots of regional powers, uh, and so the world's very different today. But we didn't feel like the academic literature allowed us to fully understand what nuclear weapons 
might might do, what role they might play in today's international environment. So sure. we decided to to investigate this issue, and the the twist we take in our book is to step back for a moment and not think so much about deterrence. Deterrence, right. uh, of course, is what has dominated the, the strategic thinking about nuclear weapons since 1945. What we wanted to do, by contrast, is to think about the, the effects of, of nuclear weapons and proliferation for more assertive forms of foreign policy behavior. And in particular, we wanted to know that whether, in addition to maybe serving as, an, as invasion insurance and reducing the risk that a country's attacked, do nuclear weapons allow states to get their way more often in international politics. To remind listeners, coercion, compellence is much harder than deterrence. That's always the, the lesson we're told. That's right. That's right. So we wanted to understand whether uh, nuclear weapons were useful for coercive diplomacy. And if you were to just listen to a lot of people who were talking about the effects of nuclear proliferation, say, in the context of Iran, you would often get the sense that having a nuclear arsenal is like having a diplomatic magic wand. Right. <laughs> that is, once you have a, a nuclear weapons capability, every country in the world has to bend to all your desires. Sure. And we thought that that was wrong uh, and that there wasn't a lot of historical basis or theoretical basis for believing that that would be true. And so we developed a theory to, to explain what nuclear weapons allow states to do and what they don't allow countries to do, and then looked at uh, hundreds of different disputes and, and crises going back to the post-World War II era in which countries decide, uh, attempted to use their nuclear arsenals for coercive aims. And what we found is that and it was very rare for a country, even when they made explicit nuclear threats, to be able to extract a key foreign policy concession by virtue of having a nuclear arsenal. Right. So in our view, while nuclear weapons might be useful for deterrence, they're not useful for these more assertive forms of, of foreign policy, and especially for coercive diplomacy. And so if they don't provide the prestige, the leverage... Uh, the ability to get your way, the ability to get a state to change its behavior, um, then it might change your risk tolerance for whether or not a state um, becomes nearer to a proliferation capability, right? That's right. That's right. So I certainly wouldn't suggest that there are no consequences associated with nuclear proliferation. There undoubtedly are. Uh, we would we want to worry about uh, accidents, for example, or increases in the in the risk that uh, nuclear weapons are used somewhere in the world. But the point of the book is to suggest that if we're worried about countries getting nuclear weapons and then being able to impose their will on everyone else, and we're uh, thinking about attacking countries to prevent them from getting a, a nuclear capability on the basis of that fear, right. then that that's a badly misguided uh, line of thinking. Right, right. And, and if you, I mean, it's just played out in your head, the states that have nuclear weapons arsenals today, how often do they compel other states to do exactly what they want? And the answer is almost never. Yeah, it turns out to be very, very difficult. Uh, 
you had you had leaders like Nikita Khrushchev and, and Richard Nixon, to give a Soviet and American example, who desperately tried on on more than one occasion to use their arsenals for coercive purposes, and both failed. Right. Uh, Nixon, in in the case of trying to end the Vietnam War in 1969, Khrushchev in the case of failing to expel Western forces from Berlin uh, between 1958 and 1961. So the track record of using nuclear uh, threats for coercive diplomacy is quite bad. So, so you can read your Tom Schelling, your Dick Betts, your Henry Kissinger, but if you want the rigorous uh, assessment of the use of nuclear weapons today, go out and order Nuclear Weapons and Coercive Diplomacy. Um, it's a great book. I, I highly recommend it. And the final question we ask everybody is, so if you had to go back in time and talk to the younger version of you, you know, uh, what advice would you give to a young political science or IR scholar starting out in the field today? I think it's there, there's a lot I would say to that. Uh, one thing I would highlight is the the importance of focusing on questions that are policy relevant, right. and that's something we hear about a lot. Um, but I think it's important to remind scholars that it's really really important. One one role that we can serve in the academy is to provide uh, rigorous analysis that speaks to enduring and contemporary policy questions. And it's easy to forget that when you're in a PhD program learning a lot of uh, statistical methods and and uh, reading a lot of academic literature. It's easy to forget that at the end of the day we really should be focusing on these these enduring and contemporary policy questions. So uh, what I try and do in my own work and what I encourage my students to do is to certainly uh, employ rigorous methods and, and careful uh, theorizing, but to use those tools to understand questions that, that matter in the real world. Right. And certainly, I, I mean, I would just say that uh, nobody has done a better job of that on this particular issue than you have. And uh, I, I just, again, congratulate you for all your efforts to bring rigor and to translate some of that uh, rigorous analysis to the public policy sphere um, if you haven't yet, please check out the, any of the articles we mentioned here, the current uh, issue of International Security on Drones, his earlier book on atomic assistance, and his forthcoming book with University of Virginia professor Todd Sexer, Nuclear Weapons and Course of Diplomacy. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks so much, Mike. I really enjoyed the conversation.